time check. Uh, we started this series three weeks, this is our third week, started three weeks ago. And we are looking at a subject called As in the Days of Noah. And if you've never dug into this before, it's really quite remarkable. And so if you're hearing something and you're like, wow, I have been in church my whole life. I've never heard that before. Or maybe you're like, I've never went to church because I thought it was boring. Hopefully this will convince you that church life doesn't have to be boring because there's some really remarkable stuff in the scriptures that we can look at. Here's something that I know when it comes to teaching, preaching. Um, I'm not supposed to answer every question. I'm not the Bible answer man. As a matter of fact, I heard the Bible answer man quit. Um, truly, there was a radio program called the Bible Answer Man and he quit and he doesn't even know if he completely believes it all anymore. So, uh, which is insane. But anyway, Bible Answer Man quit. So I'm not here to be the Bible Answer Man, but I want to share some things and just give you some stuff from the scriptures and let you just kind of start walking through it. Does that sound good? Uh, Beth had you turn there. Why don't you take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you today, we will spend most of our time in the book of Genesis, not all of it, but most of it. And Jesus was the one that said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. I don't understand all of that, but I know this, the way that it was at the time of Noah, it's going to be that way again when the Son of Man returns. So God, help us start to put our minds around this. Let's do a little refresh from the last couple of weeks. Here we go, David. Refresh number one. These are things we've learned the last two weeks. If you want to go to the church website and look at the archives and spend more time on this, you can. Um, I will let you know, last week we had over 1,000 people watching online. Over a thousand, at least 1,000 computers connected. That could be more than 1,000 people. So there's definitely reach from Faith Chapel when it comes to this subject matter. Um, so if you want to get on, on, on the archives and check it out, you can. But here's kind of our refresh from last week. Uh, Satan's initial strategy to prevent God's promise of redemption was to corrupt the seed of woman to prevent the birth of a pure, a corruption-free redeemer. And that's out of Genesis 3.15, where God said that through the seed of woman... He was going to bring freedom. He was going to crush the head of the serpent. So the serpent responded and went, well, then what can I do about that? Okay. Number two, Satan's goal was to corrupt the gene pool of humanity and block God's promise. If you're in here on Mother's Day 2017 and you're thinking, did a pastor stand in front of a congregation and say, Satan had a desire to corrupt the gene pool of mankind? Did I just hear that? The answer is yes, you did. And I know it seems, uh, facts seem stranger than fiction, and it, it feels like we should be watching this on some sort of sci-fi channel, but we'll just walk through the scriptures and I'll give it to you to look at for yourself. Number three, Satan tried to achieve this by having his fallen angels take women to themselves and join with them to create a hybrid race. They got better gas mileage. Never, some of you get that later. All right, so to create a hybrid race, uh, what on earth is going on? Well, rather than trying to explain all of it, let's go to Genesis 6. We'll start walking through it. You've got bulletins. They've got plenty of room in the back for you to jot notes. Most of us have our phones, cameras, GPSs all in one with us now. Take a picture of the notes, anything that you want to, and let's just see what the scriptures say, okay? Here we go. Genesis 6, 1 and 2. 
It says, when men began to increase in numbers on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. We spent all of our time here last week, so here's just a little gentle reminder. When it says that men began to increase upon the earth, that would be the word for mankind. It's kind of a general term that the population is growing. And because the population's growing, daughters are being born. You could also say sons were being born if you want to, but that's not what Moses focused on. Population growth, daughters are being born. And now we go from this general mankind statement and we zero it in and we say that the sons of God took the daughters of men. And, we, and, and all of a sudden, we're using specificity when we're talking about this. Now, this phrase, sons of God, which we have in the notes, sons of God is literally written out this way. It's a Hebrew phrase meaning ben ha Elohim. Ben ha Elohim. Ben means son, ha of Elohim, one of the words for God, names for God. Let me just point this out. Every other time in the Old Testament that this phrase ben ha Elohim is used, it's translated by our Bible translators as angels. Every other time. And when you read the context of the passages, it's pretty obvious that the angels presented themselves, the Ben Ha Elohims presented themselves before God. And even Satan did the same thing. I mean, we read all these verses last week. Every time it's used, it's referred to as angels, except here. And I think the reason that we don't say it here is because we're uncomfortable with it. But if it's angels everywhere else, it's angels here as well. Now, not only do we have Ben Ha Elohim or sons of God, but we also have daughters of men. And that is the Hebrew phrase, Bath Ha Adam, or as we would say, Adam, the daughters of Adam. We're talking about two specific groups of people or non-people. We're talking about angels and we're talking about earthly women. Isn't this an incredible subject for Mother's Day? All right, we're not just talking about Deborah and Ruth and Naomi today. We're digging into some other stuff. So, Pastor Brad, do you really believe that there was a time when fallen angels took women to themselves, had their way with them to try to contaminate genetics? My answer is yes, I absolutely do. But let's just start walking through the verses and we'll see if you feel the same way. Look in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. It says, after that statement that we've just read, all this is happening, the sons of God, daughters of men, took them to themselves, and then the Lord says, quote, my spirit will not contend with man forever. And this word contend, it doesn't mean we're contending in a fight or contending in a race, just be, be with, okay? I'm not gonna contend with man forever, for he's mortal, and his days are gonna be limited to 120 years. Now, let me just give you a little, little reminder for a second. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, we find out that when Noah and his wife had their children, that, that Noah was 500 years of age, when Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born. He's 500 years of age. If you look to Genesis chapter 7, verse 6, you'll find that he was 600 years of age when he went into the ark. So 500 years of age, kids are born. 600 years of age, he's going into the ark. This statement... My spirit's not going to contend with, with man forever, but his days are going to be limited to 120 years. I want you to take 600 minus 120 years 
And it's going to take you back to when Noah was approximately 480 years of age. If you've heard this verse communicated, you've probably heard this perspective that man's years are limited to 120 on earth perpetually moving forward. And my grandparents, they, they didn't even get to live to their fullness. They could have been 120. I claim 120 in Jesus' name without arth arthritis. Have you ever heard stuff like that? I'm not saying it's wrong. It could be also that. But in my opinion, in the context of the passage, with the rapid corruption that was taking place on the earth and fallen angels taking advantage of the human race, that God said, I'm done with this, and I'm not going to let this last longer than 120 years. I'm not going to contend with man forever. This has a 120-year limit, and I'm done with it. Now, that would really work well with the prophetic words spoken about Noah when, his, when he was born and his dad said, you're named Noah because you're going to redeem us from our rest and from the toil of the land that's been cursed. You're going to give us rest. Noah's such a beautiful symbol of, of salvation and baptism and freedom. But I just present to you that contextually, perhaps the 120 years were from the moment God said that until the flood took place. Perhaps. I could be wrong, but perhaps. Now, let's go to verse 4. After verse 3, we have verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. How many of you have ever read that before, and you wondered, what on earth is that talking about? You ever? Okay. Thank you, three of us that were honest. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And the NIV, the newer translation, just uses this little dash line, and it says, and also afterward... Uh, some of the older translations actually use a parenthesis, which um, we all know that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So maybe even the parenthetical statement was his own statement because of what he knew was taking place in the promised land hundreds of years after the flood. I'm not sure. But what we do get is this, that there were Nephilim on the earth before the flood, and there were also Nephilim on the earth after the flood. That much we do know. And it says, when the sons of God, oh, there it is again, Ben Ha Elohim, when angels went to the daughters of men, Bath Ha Adam, daughters of Adam, and had children by them. Oh, wow. Now we're not just hearing that they, quote, married them, but now we're hearing that they had children by them. And then it makes this statement about those children. It says, they were the heroes of old. They were the men of renown. So this leads to a really big question. Who the stink were the Nephilim? Who are the Nephilim? I mean, we, we read these Bible verses and we say, Lord, give me revelation. I want to know. And we read a verse like this and we go, okay, whatever. And we just keep moving on. I got to get through my Bible reading and check it off. How you know it's a hard time? It's hard to read that Bible through in a year, and I got to get my six chapters a day done, whether I understand it or not. Maybe we should slow down and say, God, help me understand this thing. Now, here you go. I'm going to start giving you some hints. Nephilim is not an English word. Every, all of that is in English except the word Nephilim. We transliterated the Hebrew word, and we just put the Hebrew word in there. Why did the translators put the Hebrew word in there? Probably because they don't want to deal with it. Okay? How many know that the scriptures were flawless, not translators? 
How many know the scriptures are flawless, not your pastor? Okay. How come I had a better response for the second question than the first question? It's not very kind, all right? I even wore a suit coat today and everything to try to raise the level on Mother's Day. But it, it's a Hebrew word. Literally, if you look it up, if you have ever done the Strong's Concordance and you looked up the Hebrew word Nephilim, you'll see it translated most of the time with this simple phrase, the fallen ones. The fallen ones. Sometimes it's translated as to fall, cast out, fallen ones, or deserters. Deserters. If it was deserters with two S's, they would be like a strawberry shortcake. But this is actually deserters, those that fled, right? So who are the Nephilim? They're the fallen ones. It's translated as to fall, to cast down, to desert, uh, to leave, to abandon. When I think about this, I tend to think about angels that were in God's presence forever until a third of them, along with Lucifer, rebelled against God's best and fell down or were cast down or they deserted heaven and were sent to the earth. How many know that scripturally it's taught that a third of the inhabitants of heaven left before, before man was created? So I tend to think of this as those people, those, those fallen angels. Now, with that said, how many know a little bit of Spanish? How many know enough Spanish to get yourself in trouble? It's like, if you get, not, I'm not saying the bad words, but I mean, if you, if you go on a missions trip, you, you can get yourself, and, and maybe you can speak your phrases well enough that people actually think you know more Spanish than what you do. That's what happens with me when I go on missions trips to Latin American cultures. I'll drop my phrases really well, and they'll start speaking. I'm just, I am totally lost, and I should not have memorized that phrase so well, right? Like when I say, estoy perdido, donde esta mi hotel? I'm lost, where is my hotel, right? Or Dios te bendiga, God bless you. Or uh, 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 te amo mi hermano en Cristo. I love you, my brother in the Lord. That great phrases to use at church, right? I can translate enough Spanish, it, I, I would call it gutter Spanish, that I can listen, I can pick up on what's saying, but man, am I missing the details. So if somebody gives you a Spanish manuscript, don't bring it to me and say, hey, PB, we've heard you drop some Spanish phrases. Could you help me work through this? I'm probably going to lead you astray. Now, with that in mind, don't you think that, that people that speak Hebrew natively would do better with Hebrew translation than we would? I mean, would you agree with that? I don't know if you've studied this before, but I'm going into all these types of subjects today. Have you ever studied about the Septuagint? The Septuagint. No, have you never heard of the Septuagint? I just said it, so you have, but just a moment ago, okay. David, let's go ahead and show Genesis 6-4 in the King James text for a second. I know there's a few of you that prefer the King James Version, so let's look at it. Notice they didn't say Nephilim when they translated. That's what the NIV says, and a lot of the other ones say Nephilim, but they actually used the word giants. They said there were giants on the earth in those days, or actually they said in the earth. And also after that, when the sons of God, Ben-Ha Elohim, came unto the daughters of men, Bath Adam, and they bare children to them. And notice the last line. It's real close to the NIV. It says, they, the same became the mighty men, which were of old men of renown. 
mighty men of renown. The NIV said they were the heroes back in the day. How do, how do we get giants out of Nephilim? Well, I mean, where does that even come from? Well, we've got to look at the Septuagint. And if you're like, where is that? It's between First and Second Chronicles. No, I'm kidding. It's not in there. So uh, you were doing the Bible song in your head, and you're like, hey, I never sang Septuagint. All right, so it wasn't in there. But this is what it was. There were a group of 70, and Septuagint is one of, it means 70, all right? There were 70 Jewish rabbis, and their native language was Hebrew. 70 Jewish rabbis that 300 years, three centuries before Christ, they pulled together in Alexandria, Egypt. I don't think, or Alexander, Egypt, Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt, three centuries before Christ was born, and they spent, are you ready for this? 15 years translating the Old Testament from Hebrew, are you ready for this? Into Greek. Now, why did they do that? They had a sense of the times. And 300 years before Christ, they saw the impact of Greek and the Greek... The, the, uh, the Greeks and their language on the culture and they wanted to make sure that the scriptures went into the language of the Greeks so that they could be communicated. That's just marvelous. Dear God, we need some people that can sense the times and be ready before stuff hits. I hate it that we Christians are constantly going, wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. Wouldn't it be cool to have a sense of the times and be ready for it? So three centuries before Christ, they translate. Now, typically, you've even heard me say it. The Old Testament's in Hebrew, and the New Testament's in Greek. It's, it's completely true. But there's also the Septuagint. It is the Old Testament written in Greek by these 70 Jewish rabbis that translated from Hebrew to Greek. How do you feel like you're in a historical class and you didn't like history and you're ready to move on? Okay, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you. Confession's good for the soul. Hurt my heart a little, but that's okay. <laughs> the reason I go through all that is it lets us know why the word giants is used. Because when they translated the word Nephilim, which is a Hebrew word, we all know a Hebrew word now. When they translated the Hebrew word Nephilim, they translated it, are you ready? As gigantes. Gigantes. Now, by default, doesn't gigante sound like gigantic? So you can see how it becomes giants real quickly. But let me give you the definition of gigantes. You ready for this? It's from the, the root word gigas. It means earthborn. Gigantes is where the Greeks get the word titans. You ever heard, and I'm not talking about Remember the Titans, the motivational Christian movie with the kids on the football field. But how many of you have ever heard of Hercules? Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. Or heard of Hercules and Achilles and Atlas. And what were these, what were these mythological uh, figures? They were half men, half gods, demigods. I've, I've taught this here for years, and you can either like it or not. In my opinion, the enemy does a very good job putting out a counterfeit message so that when we have the genuine message, we sound crazy. A psychic is not to be counterfeited. 
but a psychic will counterfeit a prophet of God. And the problem is, people will read a horoscope before they'll go to a prophet. Because we let the gift of prophecy fall out of the church a long time ago. Dear God, give us a heart for the prophetic. Okay? Pastor Brad, are you saying that the Bible is like this mythology? No, I'm saying that mythology takes its truth from the Bible. And it counterfeits what's going on. They used a word 300 years before Christ. Hebrew scholars, 70 of them, working together for 15 years, said the best word to identify what was going on is the word gigantes. They were like a demigod. They were a titan, and we need to put it out there so everybody can read it. Now, here's what's interesting. Gigantes is also the root for a few of our English words. Are you ready for this? Genes. Genetics. Genealogy. I'm not talking about your blue genes. I'm talking about the gene pool. Gene, genes, genetic, genealogy, all comes from the word gigantes. There were gigantes in the earth. There were corrupted genealogies. There were corrupted genetics. And because they were corrupted, the angels came, they took the daughters of men, they bare children to them, and they became the mighty men, the heroes, not hero in the sense of the firefighter that saved the day, but that the things they did were so astounding that you didn't know how else to define them. Here's a thought, it's this. Fallen angels had contaminated the gene pool of mankind by joining themselves with women and creating a hybrid race. As Pastor Beth said so beautifully this morning, demon babies. <laughs> Listen, I'm 47 years old. I'm preaching to an incredible group of people. Second service, packed out, people watching online. We're Facebook living this. It's 2017. Thanks, Miriam. 2017. Um, I know this sounds crazy. I know it does, but I want you to know that this did not sound crazy to the Hebrews. This is what they taught their children and what they believed, and somewhere along the way, a veil was put over our eyes, and we didn't even see it anymore. The NIV said they were heroes of old. The King James says they were men of renown. I'm just going to give you this. Where it says mighty men, the Hebrew word is gabor, G-I-B-B-O-W-R, gabor. Why would I mention that? In the original Hebrew and the Greek as well, and I've told you before, I only know enough with Hebrew and Greek to have tools to navigate it fairly well. Um, I cheated most of my way through college in this class, and I really regret it now, okay? <laughs> Confession's good for the soul. Anybody else cheat once? Twice? Three times, my lady. All right, so it happened a few. So I wish I would have spent more time rather than looking over Jamie Englehart's shoulder, but that's a whole nother story, whole nother story. Here's what, one thing I do remember, though. There were no pronunciation marks. You didn't have, you didn't have exclamation marks. You didn't have, you, you didn't have, com, you didn't have that. So it all just flowed together. So if an author wanted to emphasize something, they would write the word two times in a row. And the word here where it says mighty men in the King James, I told you the NIV said heroes. It was the word Gabor, and it was written two times in a row. 
to emphasize these people were crazy strong. These people were, they were some sort of different, hard to explain, hard to understand. Now, you guys give me a good 20 minutes today before we take mom out to eat? All right, okay. Is mom making your lunch today? By God's grace, no. Okay, all right. Husbands that are still in, in Husbands in Training Institute, please. It is not mom make a meal today. Please, for the love of your, your own life, and your family and your children and your desire to ever hit a golf ball again, today is not the day to ask honey what's for lunch, all right? So don't even do it. Fast if you have to, but don't do it. Um, <laughs> with all of that said, how many know if the Bible's true, and it is, we're going to see it throughout different cultures. Let me name eight cultures that have recordings in their historical data of demigods, of what they believe to be gigantes, half God, half man. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Mayans, the Incans, the Persians, those from Greece, those from India, and those from Native America. Those, those, those are eight really spread out cultures. When you're talking about the Incas and the Mayans, you're looking towards South America. When you're talking about Native America, you're ta- Amer- Americans, you're talking about here. Persians, you're talking about the Iranian Empire and Iraq and Afghanistan and all through that region. They all had records of demigods. Have you ever heard of Josephus? Josephus... Wasn't there a song? No, that was Bocephus. Anyway, Josephus, my countryside's coming out there just a second. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Josephus never, never claimed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but he actually recorded in his, in his history that Jesus did unexplainable miracles, and he even pointed out that he opened the eyes of the blind. And the thing that's so remarkable for Josephus pointing that out is blind eyes were never opened in the Old Testament, ever. There were all sorts of miracles, but never blind eyes. And it was believed that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. And Jesus did. So even though Josephus never claimed to be a follower of him, he pointed out that he did miracles, he opened the eyes of the blind. But you know who Josephus also wrote about? He wrote about the gigantes, the Nephilim, the corrupt gene before the days of Noah, when God had to deal with it on a massive worldwide flood. Josephus wrote about that. Have you ever heard of Jude? Hey, Jude. Have you ever heard of Jude? Okay. Jude, if I remember correctly, was the great-grandfather of Noah. Jude and his wife had Methuselah. Methuselah and his wife had Lamach. And Lamach and his wife had Noah. There's an there's a extra-biblical document, a historical document. It's called the Book of, the Book of Enoch. Have you ever heard of it? the book of Enoch, it, we haven't brought it into the scriptures because it's not canonical, it's not infallible, but it's historical. And in the book of Enoch, he talks about fallen angels that corrupted humanity by taking women to themselves. Now, here's my theory. And David, I know you've got it ready to go. Here's my theory. If the information about fallen angels and their, and their efforts to corrupt mankind is true, we should see it addressed in other verses. Would you agree with me on that? I mean, I love the Bible, and I love every verse of the Bible, 
But if something is, is really needs to be taught about out and open, it's going to be in there more than one time. We're going to see that kind of teaching spread throughout the scriptures. Look in Jude, verses 6 and 7. Now, um, for some reason I said Jude chapter 1, even though there's only one chapter. But Jude, verses 6 and 7. Are you guys still with me today? Okay. Um, we've got a couple of pages. I think I can do it in a good 10 to 15 minutes, and we'll let you go grill for mom. and Not grill mom, but grill for mom. And, and do those things. Um, just a smidgy of background, not a whole lot. You love the word smidgy. I know you love that. Jude is a younger brother of Jesus. If you read the beginning of his book, he says, uh, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. It was James, the brother of Jesus. So that means Jude's his younger brother as well. So obviously a half-brother, right? A son of Joseph. Um, it's believed that Jude was the youngest of the, of the family. And notice what he says here. Look in verse 6. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Let me just show you a couple of things that I find fascinating here. It says the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. Position of authority and home are different. They're different. Now, my name's Brad Riley, and my home is what I'm living in. The position of authority that God has afforded to me is the under-shepherd of this church. It's an authoritative position. It is what it is. I could say, forget it, and walk away from that position of authority and renounce it and step away from that. I'm not going to, but I could. The thing that would be a little more difficult for me to do would be to shed my home. Okay? Pastor Brad, why are you referring to your body as a home? Well, that's what the Greek does here that we don't necessarily see in the English. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority. Angels were in heaven and they had positions of authority, but some of them abandoned that. The nafal, the fallen ones, the deserters. How many believe in fallen angels? Okay, they left heaven. They abandoned their position of authority, but then it says their home. Now, I typically, in the day, I used to read that and go, yeah, because heaven was their home. And we sing kumbaya and everything's good. The Greek word for home, I know you're loving all the Greek and Hebrew today, but in a, in a series like this, you got to do it. The Greek word for home, are you ready for this? Is okterion. Okterion. I would spell it for you if I could remember how. Okterion. Okterion means your spiritual dwelling place. How many of you have ever had uh, your, your grandma or your mom when she was older say something like this? One of these days, I'm not going to be st stuck in this old decaying body anymore, but I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus, and I'm going to be able to run and jump and dance, and arthritis isn't going to bother me because I'm going to have my glorified body. You ever heard that? And it's kind of natural that the older we get, the more we tend to think, I want renewal. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever looked in the mirror 
Okay, thank you for your honesty. How many of you ever looked in the mirror and went, oh, dear Lord, help me? Okay, all right. Okay. Now, it could be for different reasons, right? It's, I had a hanger. Nobody told me. I was at school all day. Where was my friend? That, have you ever been in that moment? How come you did not tell me? But sometimes I look at myself and I'm like, dear Lord, that's not who I am. And you might be looking at me going, PB, it's who you are. When you smile, you don't have crow's feet. You have a flock of seagulls on your head, Pastor Brad. That scar, it's like a, tricopla, uh, a, a triclops. <laughs> you know, it's, you're losing your hair. It's coming out your ears now. We see it, PB. It, it is who it is. But my grandpa used to talk about this, and I get it now. Not that I'm that old, but I get it. He's, he would say to me, Brad, I still feel like I'm 15. I'm like, what? <laughs> I still feel like I'm 15 because your spirit doesn't age. It doesn't age. And there are times that, do you ever just go, I can't, not that you want to die anytime soon, but you just kind of long for your glorified body? Look in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. It says this, Paul talked about it. He said, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. How many of you have found the Bible to be true? How many of you have found that when you're clothed, you're no longer naked? Can I see it by sign of uplifted hand? Okay, we're going to count that as conversion. Thank you. Um, it'll help our church stats for the year. We've been running behind. And we'll baptize you next week, too, if you bring your own towel. But um, when we're clothed, we're no longer found naked. Why would he say that when he's talking about we long for our heavenly dwelling? Can you put heaven on as a garment? I knew those pearly gates would be amazing. I just didn't know they would fit so well as I slide into the pearly gates. When we're talking about our heavenly dwelling and not being naked, we're not talking about putting on heaven. We're talking about that spiritual body that we long for. Have you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Guess what the Greek word is for heavenly dwelling? Octarion. The word octarion is only used two times in the entire New Testament. One time of the fallen angels when it said they abandoned their octarion. And the other time when Paul said, we long for our octarion. We long for the very thing that the fallen angels shed. People have asked me about this series, and they're like, Pastor Brad, how does a spirit have a sexual relationship with a woman? <laughs> Welcome to Faith Chapel. <laughs> I just love our church. <laughs> how, does, how does that happen? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how it happens. Is a fallen spirit somehow has that ability to shed its octarion. Because, David, would you go back to Jude again, please? Jude verses 6 and 7. They didn't keep their positions, and they abandoned their octaria. They, I mean, think about it like clothing. It would be like me taking this jacket off. They just, they abandoned, they, shred, they shed it because they had a purpose of trying to bring corruption. Isn't it wild to think that we long for what they let go of? We long for that heavenly dwelling. Now, I'm not here to make anybody mad. If it happens by default, please see uh, any one of my board members after church today. 
But notice that he says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. We all know that in Sodom and Gomorrah, men were sleeping with men, women were sleeping with women, and our culture says that's completely acceptable, and God's word actually says that's almost the same thing as a fallen angel sleeping with a woman. Now, I'll just give you a hint. Because we said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. People are going to have a stronger desire for strange flesh. There's going to be a desire for immorality and perversion in ways that we've never dreamt of it before. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read things in the news that I think, how could anybody even think about that? Who comes up with that kind of evil? Okay? Are all sins forgivable? Can any perversion, whatever perversion it was, be redeemed and healed and say, yes, yes. But is there a similarity in God's word with angels doing what they did and men laying with men? Yes, there is. Here's a thought. We long for the heavenly bodies that the fallen angels shed to participate in their immorality. Well, you guys, I know it's Mother's Day. Will you give me just a few more minutes so we can like hit a stopping place for today? Okay. In our society, there was 12 of you. Thank you. That rules. <laughs> Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Jot these things down. I'll try to give you as much information as possible and as, in as little time as possible. I, I will. I'll, uh, no more preaching. I'll just throw it at you. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And actually, that's a horrible translation. <laughs> Sorry. Um, hell here is actually Tarsus, which refers to the, the dark place of woe, like a gloomy dungeon. When we think hell, we think fire and brimstone. This is more like in a chain of blackness and you never get out of it. You've even, if you've studied Greek mythology, you've read about Tarsus. I mean, it's just, it's that, that eternal place of woe and judgment, putting them into gloomy dungeons. See, isn't it interesting how it kind of describes it for us? He sent them into Tarsus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Look at this. If he didn't spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, he goes on to say, how much more will he not? We're not going to get into all that. Interesting. He didn't spare angels, but he put an end to it. And he put them in chains. Of the, he put them into Tarsus, okay? It, just another reference that it's not just sons of God, but it's angels who did what they did. These angels sinned, and they were held in judgment for it. Look at the next verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Have you ever wondered what Jesus did the three days between his death on the cross and his resurrection? Have you ever wondered about that? Did he just take the weekend off? This verse, Peter gives us some example. He says, through whom, and it was referring to the Holy Spirit, that brackets are mine just because I only grabbed a couple of verses and didn't read the whole chapter. But through the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, went and preached to who? Spirits. Now, isn't that interesting? In prison. Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. There, we've got the same numbers again. Jesus went and preached to the spirits. 
Now, this is interesting to me. How many know that as a human being, you are spirit, soul, and body? Do you know that? Okay. When you give your life to Christ, your spirit man is instantly made perfect. Can I say that you're perfect? I can. Because your spirit man is made perfect. But how many of you have ever met Christians that are perfect that are a mess? Okay. Why? Because we're not just spirit, we're also soul, which is mind, will, and emotions. Now, my problem isn't my spirit, man. It's been made perfect. But I'll tell you what, my mind doesn't always think right. And sometimes I'm just an emotional wreck. And sometimes my will lacks the strength that it needs to overcome. Am I the only one or is there anybody else in the house? Okay? So I've got a spirit, man. I've got mind, will, and emotions, and I've got a physical body. Now, this isn't about my sermon today, but I'll let you know, if we can clean up this soul this mind, will, and emotions, and release our spirit man to flow in the freedom. Talk about commanding mountains to be cast into the sea. It won't be an issue. Walking on water, that'll be child's play. You can translate from here to Kentucky if you want to. If we can actually clean up our soul, we will live at levels that we've never even imagined before. Now, we have soul, we have spirit, we have body, but you know what we're never referred to as? Spirits because we're not. I have a spirit, but I'm not a spirit. I'm all of it, okay? All of it. With that said, Jesus went and preached to the, in the Greek, it's pneumas. The pneumas. Pneuma is the word for spirit. Sometimes we refer to the holy pneuma, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we, re- it's, this word pneuma is only used for the Holy Spirit or angels or demons. Anytime the word pneuma is used, that's how it's translated. Holy Spirit, angels, or demons. Jesus went three days. He dies on a cross. What does he do? He goes down to where angels had been kept in chains of darkness, and he goes to those spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago, and he proclaims a message. And you know what the message was? You tried to corrupt the gene pool. You thought that you had stopped redemption. My father had said that from the seed of woman would come a son that would crush your head. And I'm here to let you know that today is the day because I've paid the price for my bride and the bloodline was kept perfect. And I am the seed and the line is incorruptible and you are destroyed. You are defeated. The lion of the tribe of Judah conquered. Church, God's word says that if the angels, if the spirits, if the principalities would have known what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it because he went down there and he crushed the head of the serpent. Come on now. Everything's under your feet. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to give us victory. Here's the thoughts and we'll wrap up. Jesus went and proclaimed judgment upon the spirits who had left their habitation, their octarion in the days of Noah. So here's the next thought, be encouraged. It doesn't matter how evil, how detailed, how thought out the enemy's strategy is, he cannot stop God's redemptive plan and he cannot touch those who are in Christ Jesus. Come on, can you know that you're saved? Yeah, pure blood, we absolutely know it. Next week we're gonna focus on Genesis 6-4 For just a moment, the beginning of it says, 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Remember, God said he was going to put an end to that. He was going to flood the earth and that massive corruption was going to stop. But there was still a little corruption. How did that happen? Why was Noah chosen? Why Noah? Why not somebody else? Right? God's word says that Noah was righteous and blameless. How many when you think of righteousness, you think of a real godly person? Let me ask you this. What was the first thing Noah did after he got out of the ark? He got drunk. He was a Baptist. He was a Baptist. No, no, no. Closet Baptist. He definitely Presbyterian. Absolutely. No, I, I'm having fun. I, why? Noah was righteous. The first thing he did was get drunk. Now listen, I got some reasons. Has anybody else out there ever been drunk before? I mean, we've always got our reasons. How many know if you spend a year and a half on a boat? How many just spend a year and a half on a boat with your family would be enough to make you go and get drunk? Okay, add every animal species. How much crap? How much dung did they throw overboard? I mean, you know, day 187, chucking it out there again, going, what did you feed the giraffe? They're the biggest piles I've ever seen. You know what he did? He looked at his wife. He said, when I get out of here, I'm getting drunk. I'm absolutely getting drunk. Now, I don't know if he did or not, because he was Assemblies of God. And, and the Assemblies of God, we believe that he got drunk because he didn't know that now that the vapor barrier was gone, that the wine that he made actually fermented. Because he meant to make grape juice. No, not after that much time on a boat. He meant to make alcohol. All right? That's what he meant to do. How can you call a guy that just wants to get wasted righteous and blameless? How do you do that? We'll answer that next week. Why don't you stand with me? You like this stuff? You know what? I pretty much could guarantee with great certainty that we are the only church in St. Charles County that talked about demon babies today. I, I could pretty much tell you that right now. This is not at seeker-sensitive R us. I'll tell you that right now, okay? Um, hey, before we, uh, before we collect the offering, I don't know if I mentioned this last week. I shared it with the early service. They got pumped. I want to share it with you. Your generosity does so much more than just what we see. And this isn't like anything manipulative, try to get more bucks, because God brings in the bucks, and you're incredibly generous, and it's, I'm just so thankful. Money's not a worry. All right, but it's the generosity, it's the obedience that allows the things of God to take place. A couple weeks ago, we were in a we were in a meeting, and there was a new church plant in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if I shared this last week to the late service, forgive me. I know I didn't share it with the early one, but a new church plant that just got their core group started, and they were able to buy a church building for forty thousand dollars, and it needed a lot of work, but they were able to do that. The day after they closed, all the rain that we've had this spring, 
the day after they closed, 90-foot retaining wall across the front of the church property, not a part of it, the entire thing collapsed onto the street. Uh, the city manager planner called the pastor <laughs> and said, are you? And he's like, he wasn't even used to owning it yet. What? What are you talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll give you three days to get that cleaned up. He's like, wow, okay. Well, the expenses were crazy, right? Just literally just closing on this. And we were at a meeting and they said, can we do something about this? There's a $37,000 bill that, to annihilate all the debt that needs to be taken care of. And I, did, I mean, I know you guys. I'm like, yeah, we'll do 5,000. And I wrote a check before we even left the meeting. And it's because of your generosity and your trust in the Lord. And literally, not only did we do that, but 10 other churches started pledging. We heard another five and a three and a two and a one. $37,000 were raised in less than two minutes and that entire debt was canceled. Entire debt was canceled. Last, last summer, our buddy Noel Kenny in Ireland, we were able to send $5,000 over to make up one of their monthly payments for them. Beth and I will be in Ireland in June ministering to their church again and starting to lay out our agenda for our missions trip for 2018. So I, it is the, I'm just telling you guys, give generously, give crazy because God flows through it and he's touching the world. We, I mentioned earlier, we had over a thousand people join us on our web stream last week, over a thousand computers. We don't even know how God's using Faith Chapel, which means you. He's using you in great ways. So I just bless you. Uh, to the sons and daughters of God that you are, I bless you. And I pray that every need that you have, financial, emotional, physical, mental, all of it will be met and exceeded. I, I just pray over you that you'll walk in the favor of God. I also pray over you, as Pastor Beth said earlier, that you'll be able to hear God's voice. You'll be able to hear God's voice. I, I also ask Jesus in his name that any trauma or unforgiveness that might be in your heart, that this week he'll show it to you so that you can just lay it out and hear from him more clearly and more freely. I bless you. Walk in good health, walk in victory, walk in favor in the name of Jesus. You're blessed when you go out to the country, you're blessed when you come into the city, you're blessed when you lie down, you're blessed when you get up because you're the favorites of God. God bless you and keep you and shine his face on you. And ladies, have an amazing Mother's Day. Amen. Have a great day. Love you guys.